Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another edition of Observations, where we gather together and discuss all things pop culture and comic books or as much pop culture and comic books as we can sandwich into um, each individual bite-sized episode. I uh, love talking with you guys, love, love, love talking comics history and today's discussion. It's overwhelming. It's, it's one big giant word that for me really defines the age that we blasted into when the calendar shifted into our new millennium and we left the 90s behind, the 1900s behind, the 20th century goodbye, and we entered the 21st century. And there is so much that was going on in pop culture and in comic books and certainly the summer of 2000 saw the X-Men movie by Brian Singer and Fox introduce Hugh Jackman and uh, and and add to to Patrick Stewart's resume Professor X and Ian McKellen's Magneto Charles Charles oh that's so good those but that's the summer of 2000 so you know that kind of to me kicked down the doors I will argue with anybody who wants to come at me and say the blade you know it's the cool thing to do I've noticed oh blade started the, the revolution no it didn't no it did not I was Great friends with everybody who was producing Blade at New Line Cinema. It was a vampire movie. It was a horror movie. It was marketed as a vampire and a horror movie featuring a vampire hunter, not a superhero, a vampire hunter from Marvel Comics, no less, that had um, really uh, been, been uh, you know, uh, through the years, glorified through the Tomb of Dracula, a great classic that doesn't get enough run by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan, one of the best illustrated and written comic books of all space and time, but we'll save that for an entire horror episode. But just a side note that we are not going to, uh, I, I don't even have that argument. When If you were there and if you're um, 20 years old, you weren't born yet, okay? You're, you were three years, four years from, three years from being born. Blade came out and uh, blew everybody away as a cool uh, vampire film in an age where vampire films were just getting rolling. Underworld would follow and they would all kind of uh, investigate the same sort of super powerful vampire um, bad guys. Blade did not initiate a single green light on another superhero film. The, that, that, that's where you know uh, what triggered it. Did Blade and the success of the vampire horror film that was Blade, R-rated, New Line Cinema, all my buddies produced it. I was very aware of what they were doing when it was going down. And uh, see, right off into this episode, I've derailed so quickly, but it didn't get a single comic book greenlit. Green Comic books were in the deep freeze, especially because of Mr. Freeze, Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger, and his depiction of Mr. Freeze in uh, in Batman and Robin, because that movie, people just, just, it, that was a like multicolor comic book vomit session. People rejected it. It was made fun of. And the studios, not, maybe you didn't, maybe you loved um, Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl. Maybe you loved all that stuff. And certainly Um, um Papa Thurman uh, as as Poison Ivy was very um, enjoyable. But the uh, Batman and Robin sent movies into the, the deep freeze. Um, let me cool you off, comic book industry. And, uh, and, and it did because executives were executives, as I've covered here before, thought the only comic book movie that worked was Batman. And that's because the public knew about it from the Adam West show. And that was the prevailing notion, whether 
you went in to meet with executives at Paramount Studios, 20th Century Fox, Disney, Sony, all of them. That's how they felt. That's how they felt about it. New Line Cinema was the most the the company that was going to take the most that they gambled the most on comic book titles. They they the guys there loved them. They were young. They were they were in their twenties. They they were digging comics and the comic book scene since they were young teens, and and now they had these executive positions, and that's why you saw New Line do uh, Spawn and Blade and uh, some other ones that are escaping me, but they, they bought a bunch from me with the intention of making them, and they were very aggressive. Oh, they made The Mask. They made Jim Carrey's The Mask from Dark Horse. So they were very aggressive in their pursuit, but the other studios felt the comic books were, they didn't under, understand how to uh, strip mine them for the success that they felt that they needed to achieve. And, and when Batman went cold, the industry stopped making comic movies for the better part of three years. And that's why X-Men had such a tiny budget because it was so hard, uh, for Fox to believe that this movie would work. And, you know, so the summer 2000 X-Men comes out, makes a couple hundred million bucks, blows the industry away, literally pulls the curtain back on what is possible in regards to comic book films. And then Sony, immediately, based on that, gets um, gets going with Spider-Man because it it's coinciding, coincides with the timing of Spider-Man coming out of bankruptcy court where all different parties were canon films. I think Cameron, everybody was trying to say they had a piece of it. And the judge ruled uh, that it would go to Marvel. And within 24 hours, Sony had said to Marvel, we'll give you $10 million a picture. Do not think for one minute that that was not the biggest deal in Hollywood at the time. We've gotten into these, there's been so many ceilings shattered in the last decade that what happened 20 years ago, 21 years ago, 21 years ago has been overlooked in regards to uh, the fact that when Sony said, we'll guarantee you 10 million a picture, that's for for a publisher, Uh, especially a publisher like Marvel that was coming out of bankruptcy, that had been in bankruptcy reorg for for four years, that was like killer. They had X-Men which was cleaning up at the box office, but really the dirty little secret is those X-Men movies kicked Marvel about a million dollars a movie. That was it. Yep. Uh, was told that to my face. That 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 those Fox deals were very minimal payouts to Marvel Comics. They weren't percentage. They didn't get a piece of the gross. Sony, they got like 10 million up front. Maybe it was 20, but uh, uh, then they got a piece of the movies uh, until they renegotiated it, whereon, where, whereas Marvel took all the licensing, I think about 10, 10 years ago, and changed the terms with Sony. But coming out of bankruptcy court with Sony right there with the big fat check saying, bring us Spider-Man, was the best and obviously the cheapest buy-in that any studio has done to a franchise the size of something like Spider-Man. And it's funny because Spider-Man is going to play huge into the subject that we are about to dive in today. I haven't said the word yet. You're like, it's been seven minutes. When are you going to say the word? The word of the 2000s is derivatives. Derivatives. We are drowning in a sea of derivatives. So the, the, the these derivatives, you know, you can go back and, and kind of try and find the source of the very first derivative it it, it don't bother you're going to find so many different um explanations the bottom line is they've been around here they've been around here either by accident or purposely for so very long very very long okay and uh let's just go to our good friend webster and he defines derivative as a word derived from another or a or from a root in the same language. 
something that is based on another source. Let's let's. I love when they give you all the different definitions, but we're going to hang our hats on something that is based on another source. There, there, therein lies the derivative. There, there you go. Derivative, something that is based on another source. As far as derivatives go, there is no derivative bigger uh, who has had more impact than Miles Morales, who was introduced maybe 10 years ago, 2011, nine years ago, uh, maybe earlier 2009. The exact date isn't important. When he hit, he hit huge. He expanded the Spider-Man um, intellectual property. They love saying in, in, in the business IP, they, he expanded that by, by taking the story of Spider-Man and making it instead of a white kid about a black kid and, 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 and uh, expanding the uh, awareness and the appeal and broadening uh, the, the, the Spider-Man brand to an audience that may not have, who, who may not have ever interacted with it or abandoned it. With Into the Spider-Verse, I saw this go like nuclear. I mean, that movie is wildly, and I believe deservedly so, seen as the most genius uh, superhero comic book film to date put on put on film. I mean, I mean, animation was amazing. That the, the characters, the the modeling, the the style was just unbelievable, and it and it and it took on such a complicated subject matter and made it so simple to digest and 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 obviously this is it, it it introduced so many of the derivatives you got peter porker you got spider gwen um you obviously got the original peter parker um it just that movie is is completely uh that movie com completely celebrates the entire concept of the derivative and the derivative uh, uh, from another source is 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 paramount in everything that has gone on here in the 2000s because uh we we have now like like I said earlier we are under an avalanche of these derivatives and let, let's examine kind of the whys and the hows of 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 the 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 rise the rise of the derivatives and how it came about and 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 the key element that you have to understand in in when we discuss the derivatives is right after marvel emerges from bankruptcy in uh, the late 90s and they reconstruct uh, their editorial and publishing division under Bill Jemis as the publisher and then um, Quesada as the EIC. One of the edicts that goes around that travels through the comics industry and this kind of this stuff, I mean, you know, it, it was the fastest game of telephone you'd ever, you know, um, encountered because it, it traveled fast was that Marvel was no longer interested in new concepts, characters, or ideas. There were not a whole lot of cables, Deadpools, Darkhawks, Sleepwalkers knocking down the door. They wanted to, uh, because of rights issues and, um, and, and different, uh, you know, creative, uh, creative shares uh, being handed out. They wanted to lock that down and, and what Jim Shooter had started in the late 70s, early 80s, which was this character equity uh, program, they wanted to basically cool that off. And for about a decade, it appeared that they did just that. As with the Ultimate Universe, which is where Miles Morales sprang from, the, the Ultimate Universe really is the launch pad for a lot of what um, of, of these derivatives and, and the success of, of this, this idea that derivatives 
would become like so acceptable, wanted, uh, acclaimed, especially again, go back to Into the Spider-Verse. How, how does the best Spider-Man um, movie ever be A, animated and B, about Miles Morales, not Peter Parker? I mean, Peter Parker's in there, but again, my praise for Into the Spider-Verse is just, is uh, is eternal. It is, it is so ridiculously um, impressive to me what that movie pulled off because not only did you get the derivatives and the understanding of the derivatives, and the exploitation of the multiverse, um, I mean, it's just it, that's a lot. That's a lot to uh, to to swallow as a kid who's just going to plop down in the seat and, and enjoy that. And they pulled it off seamlessly. But you, what you saw early on with the Marvel universe was they were doubling down with the Ultimate Universe. You got two Spider-Mans monthly. I mean, more than that because you already had multiple Spider-Man comics coming out of Marvel Marvel proper. And for the people who um, are the un uninitiated Marvel, the the standard Marvel universe is uh, referred to as the six one six universe, and everything beyond that is in addition to that. So, so the Ultimate Universe was this just kind of an uh, uh, an examination, a, a further examination of uh, of what what is had been started when we started Heroes Reborn, and it um it 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 took instead instead of making a pocket universe they just told people we're going to do the ultimate universe marvel did we we're just going to inform you we're doing another line of books called the ultimates which is going to basically take these characters back to basics give you a um a a stepping stone a early doorway into these characters so you don't have to come in and issue 500 and be left out in the cold you can walk right in and experience peter parker in high school dating Mary Jane again, getting bit by the spider, you know, fresh. And, uh, the, <clears throat> the, uh, entire appeal of the ultimate universe was to get it into bookstores and get it into, I mean, I have a great Barnes and Noble collected edition of the ultimate, um, uh, stories that Bill Jemis and Bendis authored. And again, they start Peter Parker, he's a teenager again. You're introduced to him. He gets bit by the spider. He's going through everything that he went through in the Stanley and the Steve Ditko era, uh, all, all you know, in in the in the year 2000, 2001, through fresh eyes with you know maybe a new twist on science and people had cell phones and you know so the technology was ramped up. The applications were slightly different, but the inherent spirit of the character was the same. But it was fresh and it was new, and you could start with a new issue number one. And they did the same thing with um, with X-Men and then continued on with the Avengers. And instead of calling it the Avengers, they called it the Ultimates. But by that time, you had, you know, two different versions of Spider-Man running concurrently every month. And then Captain America and Thor, as far as the Ultimates, Wolverine, the X-Men, in Ultimate X-Men. And, and that's just, you understood that when you bought an Ultimate comic book, it was different than the standard Marvel 616 universe, which has always been the kind of the... Uh, bedrock of all of the Marvel universes. So, so, so your 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 comics. If you're on Spider-Man issue 700, that's the the 616 Stanley, Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby. You know, standard Marvel universe, and everything that offshoots from that is always labeled. It's either Heroes Reborn, it's either Ultimates. Um, you know, sometimes the Max line of comics was uh was its own separate adult line again it's they, they did a really good job labeling this and making you understand that this was uh this was not the standard 616 marvel u where 
where all of the kind of consistency happened. Although when I went to pitch a bunch of Deadpool stories, well, when they asked me what I wanted to do for a Marvel uh, uh, Deadpool graphic novel years ago, I said, well, can I do this? Can I can do this? And I can I do this? And the publisher said, Rob, it's we're not really hung up on continuity here. And especially in regards to Deadpool, we just view it as anything goes. And again, when Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe, which universe is he killing again? Um, because again, you're you're in you're you're picking up a Spider-Man comic where Spider-Man is alive, but in Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe, Deadpool has killed him. So again, pocket universes are not are nothing new, but the ultimate line was the double down on this uh, double kind of concurrently. You had the fresh, young, new takes on old stories, and then you had your hey, I love continuity. I love everything being consistent with Stan and Jack and Steve Ditko and everything that I've grown up loving, and that existed. And for a brief period, especially for those of you who were eager and really into the Ultimates line, and I, I was not until Miller, Mark Miller, and Brian Hitch did the Ultimates. That was my gateway, like, wow, this is better than anything I've experienced. Um, for a lot of people, they preferred the Ultimate books, and for a very extended line run of years, the Ultimate books were more successful than the standard Marvel books. Now, as far as derivatives go, Miles Morales being the biggest, most famous, most successful, most popular, you can go down to uh, the Gray Hulk. Hulk was originally gray for his first couple issues, and they couldn't get the colors right. And then um, then the printing uh, snafus were, were fixed, and Hulk was green. And so the Gray Hulk lived in history as a either a color mistake or a deliberate color choice, but he was no longer gray after just a few brief appearances, and now he was green. Well, in years uh, since then, uh, writers examined that there is a gray shade that Hulk turns into, and even uh, so much so that they spun him off into his own personality. Peter Peter David made him kind of a uh, gang mob underworld boss named Mr. Fix-It, and he was uh, sinister and that lasted for a great long period of time in the in the Marvel comics. A personality very distinct and different than the Green Hulk Smash, more kind of uh, you know childlike, temperamental Hulk that we have all known and loved. Kind of the Raging Monster became this more sinister, intelligent version with Mister Fixit. Later on, Jeff Loeb would introduce the Red Hulk. Whose, mystery, whose identity was a mystery for almost two years before finally revealing that it was, I won't say who it was because I don't want to spoil it if, in case you're hearing about Red Hulk for the first time and you're going to go grab those comics. But the bottom line is Red Hulk was a blast. Red Hulk visually was ridiculously appealing and uh, just the, the, the execution that Jeff Loeb and Ed McGinnis put into those first years worth of issues were just fantastic. That that became one of Marvel's most popular comic books, and in fact, it was a Hulk that was red, not green, not gray. And so what we have is yet another exploitation of the derivative. And this falls in line with Marvel's edict that they didn't really want to create a whole lot of new characters, because why continue to create uh, equity deals with characters when you can just extrapolate more versions of an existing character and, and, and get you know, what's better than, than one is two or three or four. And back in the uh, mid-80s, we covered this in the new NU, NU Marvel, New Marvel, which launched in the middle of the 80s, 85, 86, where Thor got a beard, um, Cap became the U.S. agent, Iron Man got silver armor. It was this whole kind of 
uh, forend changing the looks. Hulk became gray. So so the the road to Mr. Fix-It was paved right there. Um, so, so you had this, this beginning of this pivot towards, well, we can just turn Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, and Hulk into different aspects of what you already are familiar with and get your curiosity going that way. And certainly it worked and, and it worked and it had a, a certain degree of success. And uh, as, as, as we've covered here already, you know, it would then go to the umpteenth level with Miles Morales, but you're probably sitting out there going, you know, screaming out other derivatives to me as we speak. And of course, let's get down to the over in DC comics, the, the derivatives, the first derivatives that I was aware of, and they were on a uh, limited success basis because they weren't regularly exposed until the 80s when they did dedicated lines of books like All-Star Squadron. Justice Society was kind of the first dip into the toe, but over in DC, so you had Marvel had the 616 standard universe where all the continuity was based, and then they started the Ultimate Universe. We covered that. But over at DC, the understanding was everything that wasn't modern Superman um, and anything that was in the past, like World War II, and they had a rich, vast uh, catalog of World War II versions, depictions of so many of the DC characters. Uh, the, the Silver Age, Green Lantern, the Silver Age Flash, they all were were, were showcased in the All-Stars. All-Star, uh, there was a book that was... Um, uh, featured the Justice Society with an all-star. No, I think it was, yeah, they called them the all-stars. Then there was All-Star Squadron. And this became the dedicated feature of the World War II um, uh, uh, versions, models of these characters. So so if you've ever seen Flash and it looks like he has a bowl on his hair, a silver bowl on his head, that's the Silver Age Flash. That's not the Barry Allen uh, Flash that, 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 you know, became, uh, you know, more globally recognized. The silver, he looks more like the model of, of the Greek Mercury, the Greek god Mercury. That that flash is the Silver Age flash. And the Silver Age Green Lantern has a long cape. He looks distinct, very distinct and different from the uh, Hal Jordan uh, Green Lantern in the modern DC world. When I speak modern, I mean when I was in the 70s getting into comics. Everything that reflected the Silver Age or the World War II version of those characters was on a it took place in a reality called Earth 2 and literally on a separate planet called Earth 2. And I've covered a couple times here where on an annual basis, DC would get all these, um, IP, would get all this IP together and they would crash it all together and have, have an annual meeting where the Justice Society would get into their dimensional teleporter and travel over to see the Justice League or vice versa. But bottom line, the, the, the modern age DC characters were always on Earth 1. Earth 2 was the World War II world. So Superman was older and had gray hair. Uh, again, you had your Mercury-looking Flash. You had your uh, Silver Age Green Lantern, your Silver Age Wonder Woman. All of those um, were, were, were... They didn't want to lose those. They didn't, And they also didn't want to explain how the aging worked. because, And they also didn't want to lose some of those different... Um, identities. Jay Garrick is the Silver Age Flash, and that's not Barry Allen. So how do you keep them both around? You establish this Earth 2 thing. And I'm telling you, as a kid, as easy as a kid absorbed into the Spider-Verse, I understood it. I understood it when I was when I was a young comic book fan, and they would do a good job. They would show both Earths and a little arrow. This is Earth 1. This is Earth 2. And you go, cool, I'm down. There's two different realities, two different dimensions. They cross over sometimes. They meet each other. They're aware of each other's existence. And again, in the uh, 
from Young All-Stars to All-Star Squadron to the other different lines of books that they put out there in the 80s, they really decided to mine that World War II stuff in the same way that Marvel mined their uh, in World War II characters in The Invaders. And again, I would say, I, I mentioned in a recent uh, Wanda Vision, Scarlet Witch Vision episode about the original Human Torch uh, who was an android in World War II and he had a sidekick named Toro. They both flamed on. They were both flaming. Again, so I guess the 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 Johnny Storm would be an early derivative in, in regards to really mining this. Let's take something familiar and let's just reintroduce it uh, with, with the same name. Human Torch is now Human Torch here, except he came about his abilities through radiation and space, cosmic rays, with, you know, the Fantastic Four. And then this Human Torch exists in World War II. But the derivatives, uh, again, Green Lantern with Sinestro having yellow energy instead of green energy. And that, that is the kind of the earliest doorway to expanding what would be called the Rainbow Lanterns, where you'd get a Purple Lantern, a Blue Lantern, a Black Lantern. Um, Sinestro was the first to expand beyond the green energy, and he derived yellow energy from his ring. And then Alan Moore did a, wrote up a thing about a prophecy in one of the uh, his Green Lantern backups with Kevin O'Neill and Blackest Night in the Book of Oa. And, and suddenly you were off to the races and you got the emotional spectrum lanterns and you got guys on Facebook saying, hey man, I created the pink lantern and I created the blue lantern. And I would just laugh because again, these are derivatives. None of them exist without the source that is the green lantern and the mythology that extends to the green lantern. I am responsible for a derivative myself. Um, in, in It was called a derivative to me, but ultimately I came to an understanding with DC Comics and the female dove, Dawn Granger, exists outside of being a derivative, although she takes the identity dove. Dawn Granger is not Dawn Hall. Dawn Hall died. Dawn Hall did not have the same powers and did not have the same uh, abilities that Dawn Granger had, who we introduced in Hawk and Dove in 1988 when we relaunched the series. So... Again, I've, I've been familiar with the entire um, derivatives and then having to fight and say, well, this derivative is original in and of itself. If you find out the identity of the aforementioned Red Hulk, um, being someone separate than Bruce Banner helps drive home that that is beyond a derivative, even though, once again, there is no Red Hulk without a Green Hulk. And again, if you're acknowledging the character of the Blue Lantern um, and giving them creator equity, then then everything's on the table because, again, there is no Blue Lantern without a Green Lantern. So you can see where Marvel in the early 2000s was really going out of their way to limit, like, why would we expand what we have? We already have so much. And, and in truth, full stop right now, other than getting cool new characters like Venom and Deadpool and Cable and Darkhawk and Sleepwalker and so many of the cool 90s characters um, that, 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 that kind of ushered in a brand new age, Marvel and DC both have enough characters now to last themselves to the end of the Earth. Um, on a recent episode of WandaVision, we were all introduced to Monica Rambeau. But if you were reading comics in the 80s and Spider-Man and later the Avengers, you were introduced to the black Captain Marvel. So again, another derivative. I grew up with a Captain Marvel who was, in, uh, who was part Kree and one of the coolest looking visuals. But he died in this epic uh, graphic novel where Jim Starlin of Thanos and Infinity War Endgame fame and Adam Warlock killed uh, Captain Marvel via cancer. It was like the one thing he couldn't beat. So a few years later, they introduced a female black 
Captain Marvel, who was Monica Rambeau. And now she has been introduced, I would say, you know, 35, 37 years later, after her comic book appearance, she has now walked into our lives via the Disney WandaVision show uh, that is produced by Marvel, the Marvel WandaVision show that is distributed by Disney is probably the better way to put it. But, but Monica Rambeau has been sitting there in the treasure chest waiting to be activated and now she's with us. And at some point, Marvel can look back and say, and I believe they did, we have so much, we don't need anything new and we certainly don't need to cut deals where we're paying out uh, equity to these different people. Now, where, wherever that thought process led from a business standpoint, I can't follow it. I can't track it. I don't know its evolution. I do know that there was a editorial edict to, we have too many characters, especially X-Men. They had too many X-Men characters in House of M. They rectified that with the infamous No More Mutants, which Scarlet Witch, Wanda Maximoff, uttered, which reset the clock on X-Men and limited the amount of mutants in the Marvel Universe because the editorial and the publishing side of the Marvel Universe had decided we have way too many mutants. So let's limit them. We, they did it through this magic reset button. And literally magic because it comes from Scarlet Witch who's wielding this chaos magic. And uh, and they scale back the uh, not only the existence but the availability of mutant powers and mutant characters. So this was definitely a deliberate thing. And, the, and, and, and whether it was Green Lanterns over at DC, uh, two Flashes, two Green Lanterns, two Batmans, you know, there is a proven formula for this, the appeal and the curiosity of the derivative. So you got Monica Rambeau as a Captain Marvel. Since then, you know, we now have Carol Danvers going from Ms. Marvel all the way being upscaled to Captain Marvel. And 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 so we've already gone way beyond Monica Rambeau in the films. We 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 because Ms. Carol Danvers was Ms. Marvel, which was a sister kind of derivative character to Captain Marvel, also a Kree warrior. And she had her own title, her own exploits, really fun book. Um, but then they upgraded her and gave her the Captain moniker after Monica Rambeau, who had very different powers as well, much more energy-based powers. So, but they kept the title. And then you go over in DC, they have a Captain Marvel that was associated with Shazam. So like that is a very well-worn uh, moniker, title. And and and, Mon and 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 Marvel has had multiple Captain Marvels, so the derivative aspect goes back very far in regards to what they're doing. Again, right at the birth of the Marvel Universe, you've got Grey Hulk becoming Green Hulk. You've got Johnny Storm becoming Human Torch, who existed in the in World War II as a character called the Human Torch, but not the same character, but same title powers. So again, the derivative is a tried and true. We, we would call a trope. But it has um, exploded in the 2000s, just flat out exploded. I mean, you've got Red Goblin now. What's better than a Green Goblin? You got a Red Goblin, and he was a couple of years back burning up the charts in the Marvel, in the in the Spider-Man books. The appearance of Red Goblin. I remember getting to the comic store, and, and they didn't have the latest issue of Amazing, and I'm like, wait, what, what, what's going on? Oh yeah, we sold out. We we sold out when we opened this morning, and that was because the advent of Red Goblin, a new you know a new derivative. And the Red Goblin was almost identical to Green Goblin, except colored head to toe in red and looked very sinister, very devilish. So obviously you're, you're, you're sitting here and, I, and I'm telling you right now, whether it's X-Man, Nate Gray from Age of Apocalypse, which also did a huge uh, dance with derivatives, who, is, who does not exist without Cable, 
You've also got Lady Deadpool, Dogpool, Headpool, Venompool, Gwenpool. So I'm, I'm, I live and swim in the derivative ocean in, a, in maybe one of the biggest derivative uh, uh, lakes available in the comic book universe. So, so trust me when I, I tell you I know of what I speak. On my mantle, looking over at me, is a killer. I got it uh, uh, from the Warner Brothers store way back in the late 90s. Warner Brothers had opened a chain of stores in most major malls that sold all of their different intellectual properties from Bugs Bunny to Superman to Batman. And, and what I got was this brilliant, beautiful maquette, uh, uh, a kind of a, a little statuesque figure um, of Batman Beyond. And I remember when Batman Beyond debuted on 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 uh, on as a Saturday morning cartoon and by by Warner Brothers and again Batman Beyond a younger Batman futuristic suit no cape uh I prefer him I actually really really dig Batman Beyond more so than I like Batman and I liked the fact that they took kind of the Frank Miller older Bruce Wayne model that we hadn't seen prior to Frank uh doing Dark Knight again Dark Knight is an endless mine of gold for DC Comics, because in Batman Beyond, that uh, older Bruce Wayne looks exactly the way that Bruce Wayne is depicted in Frank's award-winning, critically acclaimed, groundbreaking, revolutionary Dark Knight Returns. And in Batman Beyond, they actually keep him out of the suit completely, and they make him a mentor figure to our younger, uh, cooler, sleeker, badass uh Batman Beyond, but also the creators of Archie Comics, The Fox, would probably raise their hands and say, Batman Beyond, other than the bat on his chest, looks exactly like our character, The Fox. So the derivatives, folks, never end. They just keep coming and they keep coming in new um, tastes and new flavors for us to enjoy and expand upon. And uh, again, whether it's uh, I, I'm responsible. I created, introduced Lady Deadpool. So, so I'm in on the derivative train. It's it's a fun train to be on. And uh, in in regards to, I mean, look, you go you go to even something like the Power Rangers, and you've got a bu- a team of derivatives. They're all just denoted by color, much like Green Lanterns, right? White Ranger, Blue Ranger, Red Ranger, Pink Ranger, Green Ranger, and it's cool and it works. And and uh, again, you go back to Green Lantern and Sinestro being the first doorway open to another color of the Green Lantern spectrum. Then you 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 had uh, Star Sapphire and her purple energy. And then before you know it, you've got the entire emotional spectrum, which they built an entire huge crossover, which I think, again, over at DC, especially in the early 2000s, the blue lantern, the green lantern, the yellow lantern, that entire Blackest Night uh, crossover, that was a huge deal and a huge sales success as far as, as as being an acclaimed body of work, Ivan Rice and Jeff Johns crushed it on that Green Lantern uh, storyline crossover. And it was a huge, big success. And one of the things that stores got to promote that in the early 2000s was a bag of different rings. And you got two plastic rings and you there was a yellow, a blue, a purple, all the colors that we've discussed, green. And they were um, much sought after. And if you were lucky enough to get one upon purchasing one of the participating Green Lantern books, well, then you were in luck because that is how everything was going down in regards to the, um, the, the, the reception for the derivatives. People were digging them, like super digging them. And I mean, in the biggest possible way, they were just in, in enjoying 
this idea of derivatives, and certainly nobody did it better, bigger, um, and on a on a grander scale than the Green Lantern saga uh, in in the you know early two thousands two thousand eight to two thousand ten two thousand six really two thousand six two thousand five that entire Jeff Johns Green Lantern um, saga was exploiting this derivative of Green Lantern. So the derivatives again, as I say, when I when I think of the two thousands and I think of the the um, the the exploitation of the derivative again. Whether Man- Monica Rambeau steps in, there is no Captain Marvel. She becomes Captain Marvel. There isn't then like ten Captain Marvels. Like there was all these Green Lanterns all of a sudden. Now Green Lantern Corps had always existed. There was always different Green Lanterns from different sectors, and I love those books. There was a book called Green Lantern Corps. It's where Kilowog uh, Kilowog was featured there. He was introduced in the regular Joe um, Joe Staten illustrated Green Lantern monthly book. You, you had the raccoon and the beaver Green Lantern, and you had, you know, all the different Green Lantern characters, but this idea of the colors, and suddenly each color had their own core. That was this brand new kind of expansion of the brand that, that was introduced via this concept of derivatives. My I've already said my own personal favorite was probably Red Hulk. I I I loved Red Hulk more than I loved Green Hulk. And I, I just thought the execution. He was more sinister. He was seemingly more powerful, um, and and there was a great mystery and a great soap opera to go along with it. And it always had the very best artist that Marvel had available to them at the time. Beyond Ed McGinnis and his stellar work on the book, Art Adams stepped in to do a few issues. Frank Cho stepped in to do a few issues. Wills Portacio did a fill-in. I mean, this was like the A-list, but the A-list or the A-list, the A-list buffet of amazing talent. And so, again, as you go through the 2000s, rather than build a new character, it was just, hey, let's let's tweak this. Let's make, let's, so we had a Gray Hulk, we had a Green Hulk, we have a Red Hulk. And then we have um, Deadpool and Lady Deadpool and Dogpool and Headpool and Kidpool. We forgot Kidpool. Kidpool has lightsabers. How can you forget Kidpool? Probably be even more um, popular today with his green lightsaber than he was even 10 years ago when we featured him in the Deadpool core because they also teamed up. So again, you get this expansion of the idea of the derivative and, uh, Marvel and DC definitely continued to dine out. And then you get to Miles Morales, which again gives a different Spider-Man identity to a, not just, you know, it expanded it huge by making, by doing the race change and making it the story of a black slash Latino um, uh, character, uh, the, the, the entire expansion of that background. And, uh, and, and I mean, Miles Morales just took off. And, and to this day, I think right now in the current marketplace um, and is, is, that, uh, is, is that Miles is possibly more popular than, than Spider-Man. And I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. Do I believe it was absolutely helped by the, um, the, the exploitation of the Into the Spider-Verse movie, that, that the fact that that got into a million eyeballs? Um, you know, I, I, I just, uh, that, that was, um, was just ridiculously, I just cannot even, um, you know, uh, tell you what, what, what a fantastic, amazing, uh, uh, success and, and just blew my mind. Okay. So Miles first appeared in 2011. All right. So he is a biracial teen 
son of a black father and a Puerto Rican mother. So forgive me if I said Latino, black and Puerto Rican. Again, on the Wikipedia page, which is helpful here, it says black Spider-Man and Spider-Man, Miles Morales, are redirected here. So he is part Puerto Rican and um, his parentage is Puerto Rican and uh, mother and black father. And he ultimately expands the Spider-Man brand in a way that I don't think anybody saw coming and as successful. Now, I mentioned Ms. Marvel, but also at the same time they did Ms. Marvel. And this was the cool pivot in the in the way they were doing derivatives in the late 70s. You had Spider-Woman. She got her own cartoon. Go on YouTube. Watch those episodes. Or actually, I think they're on Disney+. Plus. If you don't have Disney+, Plus, uh, last time I looked, they were on YouTube. But I loved Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman. She uh, was a decidedly different character than Spider-Man. She had Venom Blast. She didn't have webs. But she was just one of a couple different versions. And actually, along the way, there was a different Ms. Marvel as well. Um, there was two Ms. Marvels, multiple Captain Marvels. There was a Spider-Woman in addition to a Spider-Man. Again, the derivatives were um, were, were always um, part and parcel of, of what the comic book industry offered and, and part of the larger buffet of options that you got but they exploded in the 2000s. And I, I will continue to hang the hat on Miles Morales. Also, you cannot talk about a derivative without going to She-Hulk. Lady Deadpool is exactly the same manner that She-Hulk is in that it is a female version of the popular male character. She was given even the, the blood of her cousin, Bruce, who transformed her, um, Jessica Walters, into She-Hulk. And of course, She-Hulk is coming to our um, Disney streaming services in the next year or so, and you're going to get even more and more and more in regards to uh, 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 She-Hulk and the expansion of the Hulk branding. And over in the Captain America world, uh, there was a period several times he's retired being uh, Captain America. When I was coming into comics, uh, there, there was they were doing a storyline that mirrored the Nixon era storyline and 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 the president was literally a bad guy with a with a like secret society trying to overthrow the united states and when his identity was revealed he killed himself in front of captain america upon which in 1975 1974 right around then uh steve rogers gives up the mantle and becomes nomad and nomad is this separate crime fighter identity that he exists for that he creates for himself so that he can continue to be a superhero or a crime fighter, but he doesn't want, want to wear the colors and represent the United States anymore. So he ditches the Captain America identity. At that point, a young kid puts on the Captain America uniform. Doesn't last more than a few issues. Uh, this is definitely spoiler territory. He dies tragically at the hands of Red Skull. And then Steve puts the Captain America uniform back on and uh, teams up with Falcon and they take the fight to Red Skull. But later in the 80s, uh, they introduced the U.S. agent who was a darker uh, version of... Uh, kind of more of a, or a sinister, dark version of Captain America. And then again, Sam Wilson, the Falcon, has become and taken on the mantle of Captain America, having his own Captain America title, taking over the proper title in the 2000s, expanding once again the idea of the Captain America branding and, and kind of doing the same thing they did with Miles Morales. Now, Sam has always been more than capable of taking on that identity as a fan. It was cool to watch and cool to see a black Captain America. Again, expanding, broadening the diversity of these characters. And, and again, I just want to tell you that the, the, uh, the diverse, my episode on diversity in, com in, in comics was early on in our podcast. You can go back and find it in the library. I highly encourage it because when I was a kid, I just loved all the different black characters that were coming out um, from 
uh, Marvel and DC, the Black Lightning, Black Panther, uh, uh, Black Goliath, uh, and Luke Cage, Power Man, the, 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 the best of all of them. But so again, the, the, the derivatives have really, I mean, with the ultimate universe, when the, I mean, the ultimate's title, that version of Cap, Iron Man, and Thor were just more appealing uh, to me at the time than the standard Avengers comic book was. But, um, you know, you had them running concurrently, so you had had just a, a uh, just overload of Spider-Man or Cap, or, you know, you had double, triple versions in some cases running, especially when you had Amazing Spider-Man in the 616, and you had Ultimate Spider-Man, and you had Miles Morales, so you really do have three Spider-Mans running concurrently. So, and then again, Deadpool core, I mean, Deadpool got his own book of dedicated derivatives. And right now, I think, um, Venom pool, uh, Marvel has put out a, a giant, oh my gosh, it's, it's, it sideshow has created this massive Venom pool statue. They, um, put out their, uh, 16 inch, uh, amazingly detailed and rendered figure that they, that came out right before Christmas. And then Hasbro had a build a Venom pool figure as part of their last Spider-Man wave. So Venom Pool is out in the biggest possible way on in 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 the culture right now via toys, statues and and uh um you know just just merchandise and licensing and I think if Venom Pool he is ready for his close up most certainly I think a Venom Pool comic would blow up just absolutely 100% uh blow up and you know the black Spider-Man costume that becomes Venom eventually in the mythology was another version of a derivative. They wanted to sell two Spider-Man figures in the Secret Wars toy line, so they duplicated the costumes. And again, I can hear you guys. I mean, the, the more I speak, the more you know. You you really realize just how deep this derivative um, rabbit hole can take you because there there are just so many different versions. And then you get to like let's say the pops. And, and there are multiple derivative Funko Pops of Spider-Man, multiple derivative Funko Pops of Deadpool, and obviously multiple derivatives, as I've said, of Batman. I think he's getting a brand new silver and blue costume to go with his black and gray costume. And then there's this, as I said, the Batman Beyond branding, which to me is my favorite of all time. I love Batman Beyond. I just love the character. I love the world. And I love how it took Frank's Dark Knight and took it and, and, and kind of pivoted it towards a different... Um, concept, maybe a, a more of a Blade Runner future and Bruce Wayne guiding things as a mentor figure. But, uh, you know, the, the derivatives are not sidekicks. Robin and Wonder Girl and Kid Flash, while they live in the derivative zone, Robin is his own character. Uh, I, I, an argument could be made more for Kid Flash because he, he shares the name and he's also a super speedster. And Speedy certainly was a counterpoint, a sidekick to Green Arrow, but derivatives are not necessarily sidekicks. They're their own thing. The Red Hulk was not a sidekick to the to the Hulk. He was his own commanding character, and um, you know demanded years worth of stories. And as I said, was among one of Marvel's most successful titles during its run. And so he again, the derivatives exist in their own space. So in in regards to like giving us too much of one thing. I think we're living it. I mean, they're, 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 when I first saw Star Wars, it made it seem as if Obi-Wan talking about a Jedi Knight, even though he said there, you know, 
the Jedi Knights were like the police of the galaxy. They were the guardians of the new of, of the old Republic. I, I never imagined that there would truly be as many of them as a giant double page, you know, splash that was full of hundreds of Green Lanterns. But that's how it feels like with Jedi Knights now. Now in the prequels, when I got to see all of the different versions of the different Jedi Knights, it reminded me of the Green Lanterns. You know, they all protect and serve different planets and different sectors. And now we have, uh, uh, you know, s such an expansion of the branding. I mean, Mandalorian in and of itself is a derivative of Boba Fett, who they've turned into a derivative of the Mandalorian, given that the armor was not earned, it was stolen, or it was gifted to him, but we didn't know that until just recently. And so you've got a non-Mandalorian bounty hunter wearing Mandalorian armor. But again, I mean, it was cool to see the silver and brown Mandalorian are lead Mandalorian character standing next to Boba Fett. And, and, and once again, it's this idea of derivatives. And we currently are in a derivative culture that truly enjoys um, all of the variations on the same theme that we are being fed. We, uh, we, we, the, the experiment would seem to be a tremendous success because people can't seem to get enough of it. And even like, think about it in your soda drinks, you know, whether it's vanilla Coke or Coke or cherry Coke, you're getting derivatives of Coke just with different colors. They're like the Green Lantern core of soda drinks. So the derivatives to me is what really has defined so much of the 2000s and especially the 2000s based on that edict of we don't need any more X-Men. We don't need any more new characters. Let's, let's look on expanding what we have. The Ultimate Universe was the quickest, fastest way to get a younger Wolverine, a younger Spider-Man, a younger Colossus. Um, and 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 again, the, the other thing with the Ultimate Universe, they wanted to have new entry points if you were coming out of the Fox X-Men movie or coming out of the Sony Spider-Man movie and you wanted a new um, entry point into Spider-Man and you didn't want to go back 600 issues and, and experience that intimidation, you could go, oh, hey, and your retailer and your Barnes & Noble bookseller we're going to immediately say you can jump on here. So it was a great idea. Double down on the idea of of derivatives um, and, and younger versions, older versions. But this has been to me the the biggest uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, tropes of the 2000s was the expansion. And and again, I don't think anybody did it better and bigger than than the Green Lantern um, Darkest Night storyline that covered years. But that is. The beginning of the door knock that we're doing on the 2000s as that door starts to pry open. And we're going to walk through that. And and again, so much of it, uh, we talked about derivatives today. And last week, we got a derivative walking right up to us in the Marvel show. I, I feel like as we strip mine my childhood, uh, so much of it is appearing on screen and becoming live action. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's exciting. It's an exciting time. I love that I grew up in the time that I did and I firsthand absorbed all of this. You can tell my the, the com, comic books are and continue to be my 100% obsession. And this podcast has become an obsession with mine and sharing these ideas and uh, connections with you guys. I was so thrilled that you all reacted to a recent podcast I did as positively as you did in regards to both going independent and how to deal with the haters. And I was dwelling on the fact, I mean, th th this last few days, your messages have been amazing. I have had so many professionals. I won't name, name who they are, but there's a dozen professionals who messaged me and said, Rob, you're 
talk on the haters. Again, uh, an essay I wrote in 2011, 10 years ago, just really spoke to me. And, and people have given me these different um, messages about how they were inspired. And look, you guys, there is definitely a negative culture that we live in. It is easier to tear someone down than to build them up. And for some reason, uh, we uh, humanity seems to be tilting towards uh, you know, our, our worst basic instincts. And we just like to tear people down. I myself have changed my conduct on social media over the last several years. When I first introduced myself to Twitter... I thought, oh my gosh, I have my own radio station network. That's how I viewed it. Like I have my own voice. I can call the shots and I would call out much more negative than I would positive. And if you followed me for the last couple of years, especially the last, I would say three years, I have eased up on being critical in any level because I, I, I just think it just contributes to the overall negative, uh, negative energy that's out there. And we don't need that. We, we thrive on positive energy and that doesn't mean that a mistake, some some drastic mistake should go unnoticed. Um, you know, there was a misidentification uh, of, of a credit to a prominent comic creator that I called out a year ago. I'm not going to get into specifics, but it was a pretty flagrant mistake. And, and you know, it was apologized and it was um, handled. But that that something like that, it begs to be you know, noticed when I make mistakes on the podcast, you guys let me know if I got my dates wrong, if I, um, didn't do enough research. That's why a lot of the times I go, it, it's 1974, 1975, somewhere in that range. I, I, the, the idea is not to be specific in, in, when I, when I do that, it's just that this happened and I'm trying to give you a guideline with which to put it, put it in, but I'm not going to give you an exact date and exact time. Cause I'm most likely going to be wrong. But other than that on Twitter, I try and just share positive things. Uh, build people up, say what I like. There's a lot more that I don't like than I like because there's just there's an overwhelming amount of stuff out there, movies, television, music, comic books. And I don't like as much as I like, but I've decided to not share what I don't like and focus on what I do like and maybe find shared, you know, um, uh, passions for that stuff because uh, it's, it's, it's easy to knock stuff down. And, and we all live in that world. And I have definitely eased off the pedal. I used to love it the first 10 years on Twitter. Oh my gosh, I just loved calling things out and calling it the way it was and, and giving a voice to, you know, uh, using my expertise in a way that I could, you know, maybe uh, cut other creators down. And that wasn't cool. And I stopped doing it. I stopped, um, you know, putting the focus where it didn't belong, which is negative energy and tried to promote positive energy. And I just really think that, um, you know, we are in the arts and, and the beauty is in the eye of the beholder and, and the people who don't like your work, who don't behold it and in high regard, they love letting you know it. But the greatest thing that I have found on Twitter, and I'm going to really, really give the hard, hard, hard recommend to this is the mute option. My, my, my son, a couple years ago, literally it was maybe three years ago, came to me and said, dad, you shouldn't block people. That just empowers them. My, my, at the time, 17 year old son gave me this gem of wisdom because he sees social media through a different lens. And he said, dad, you shouldn't block people. Just mute them, turn them off. That is my hard recommendation to you. Whether they follow you or not, it doesn't matter. I do the same. I don't, it doesn't factor in. I just, if that negative voice is attempting to reach me, I don't need them to know that I can't hear them anymore. All I need is to just not hear them anymore. It is actually the best uh, application that Twitter gave. And I know Twitter is really controversial right now. And it's, um, very interesting how we built up this platform. And now this platform semi kind of runs us, um, instead of us running it. And, you know, who knows what it'll, how 
and when and what it will evolve to. But that mute button is your friend. And on Facebook, again, uh, uh, you know, unfriending or blocking actually, I think, works better on Facebook. Um, but they now even have an unseen, like a, a limit where you see this person. And in, 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 <laughs> there's, there's this one thing, I won't get into it, that everyone has started to do on Facebook. Well, not everyone, but a lot of people have started, and it just drives me crazy. So what I've done is when people do this one thing, I just kind of um, lose them. It's this option that they give you where you can limit your availability or your viewing of them. And I find that that's so much more um, pleasant than unfriending or blocking. So it's that limiting. It says limit where you want to see, you know, fill in the blank. And I do that. And then when it's over three months and they come back in, I go, oh, let me, let me do that again. And, and I take a break. Yeah, I think that I think that's what it's called, the take a break option. Do you want to take a break? And you know what? I know this knowing that people have muted me, blocked me, and taken a break from me. And it's a two-way street, and that's how it should be. And uh, and and I just tell you that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And and some of my favorite artists aren't your favorite artists, and some of my favorite writers aren't yours, and some of yours are definitely not mine. But there's mutual common ground that we can find and we should find, and that's what we should celebrate between each other. And uh that's kind of my entire become my entire focus and just uh you know maybe it's having kids and and having them become you know uh, arrive on social media in the capacity that they have or maybe it's just old age and wisdom finally kicking in whichever I've just decided to completely change the way that I apply myself and and I try to not be a hater even to athletes even to even to you know I used to I used to qualify sports hate and and maybe the only team that you'll see me hate on still I can't help it is the Clippers I, I really I really don't like the Clippers I, I have despised them my whole life and um you know that th- th- they're a hard pill for me to swallow so that that'll be the last place that that I'm I'm able to apply this this discipline this new discipline to you so forgive me and until I get there if, if you hear me say some negative things about the Clippers uh yeah I, I'm sorry I'm I'm sorry I'm working on it I'm, I'm definitely gonna work on it some more you guys thanks for taking this journey with me the derivatives uh, the rise of the derivatives was our subject today. It was interesting. It 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 it's, it seemed to really have overtaken um, the, the 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 culture, and and we're going to continue to examine it as we walk through uh, all the comic books and all the pop culture that we're currently um, enjoying. So I am on social media at Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld, full name. On Instagram, uh, Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. So Instagram, Rob Liefeld, Twitter, Robert Liefeld. I'm all over Facebook, all over social media. Love hanging out with you guys. Love talking to you guys, sharing ideas. Um, Make sure, please, to take care of yourself. Uh, Stay safe out there. And we will talk again real soon. (laughs) 